Welcome to My Two Cents with host J.R. Robinson and co-host Jessica Lonnie Rich. Are you on track for a secure retirement? If things go badly in the markets, will my nest egg still last? How do changing tax rules impact consumer savings and spending strategies? How do I know my financial advisor is competent and ethical? How do I organize my financial life? We'll answer important personal finance questions like these and so much more. And we'll do it in a way that makes a dry, arcane topic engaging and entertaining. And now, here are your hosts, JR and Jessica. Hello, and welcome to another episode of My Two Cents with financial planner J.R. Robinson. I'm co-host Jessica Lani Rich, and we are streaming to you from Honolulu, Hawaii. The title of today's program is J.R.'s Good Trouble. J.R., why don't you get us started? What do you mean by that? Okay. Um, good afternoon, Jessica, and aloha to all of our listeners. Uh, yeah, we, I think we have an interesting show today. Um, I'm sure... Many of our listeners know that the term good trouble is uh, attributed to the late John Lewis, uh, the, the lifelong civil rights leader and long-term congressman who passed away this summer. And um, when I was in high school and in college in the 1980s, uh, the civil rights movement and the history of Black America were really only uh, a tiny part of the U.S. history curriculum in, in my education. So. Um, as such, I'm, I'm embarrassed to confess that I, I actually knew almost nothing of Mr. Lewis's incredible life and incredible legacy and, and until he had died, until he was you know, memorialized. And I wanted to explain all this because um, I want everyone who may uh, be listening to this show to understand that um, I'm not trying to be pretend to be somebody that I'm not, and I'm not trying to appropriate uh, or exploit Mr. Lewis's legacy. Um, my, my reason for invoking good trouble in, in my two cents is simply that when I heard his you know, wonderful explanation for what he meant when he encouraged people to go out and cause good trouble, um, it really struck a chord with me. And um, that explanation that, that he gave um, read as follows, I, I quote, he said, when you see something that's not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to get in the way and make some noise. And um, that resonated with me and is a, a powerful message. I agree, JR. That is a very powerful message that we should all take heart. So please tell us how that message moved you and how it relates to the work that you're doing now in financial planning. Um, yeah, thank you, Jessica. And that, that's, you know, today's show is all about that. And uh, it's exactly what I wanted to talk about. So for, um, most of my adult life, I've, I've actually carried kind of a guilt for, for going out uh, and building a business and, and raising a family, but not really ever contributing back much to the community. And um, you know, my parents definitely instilled in me um, an understanding of the importance of volunteerism and uh, of giving back to the community and, and to society as a whole. And um, in high school, they encouraged me to, uh, to go out and volunteer at a local nursing home a, a couple of days a week. And in the early years before moving to Hawaii, I got involved with the Masons and um, Habitat for Humanity as a couple of civics groups. Uh, when I got to Hawaii, I, I joined the Rotary Club and then the Honolulu Civic Club. And, you know, while I, I contributed time and a little bit of money to these various cons you know, community service projects, um, the reason I'm explaining all this is really not so much that I did all these things, but at the end of the day, none of those endeavors actually really fueled my passion. And as a result, those experiences really became relegated to nothing more than just a few lines in the community service section of my resume. Um, and they were there really just to give the appearance of community involvement. Um, and I, I actually, as I thought about it, I, it actually made me feel guiltier. And so you know, a few years ago, I deleted all references to community service from my CV and my LinkedIn profile because I really didn't feel like I've actually done that much. And really, um, if I'm being honest with myself, the only cause that ever really 
fueled my passion and it, and it still fuels it today uh, is actually financial planning. And in fact, my passion for my career has been such that it's that it's actually become my identity. I mean, it's pretty much who I am 24-7, um, for better or for worse. I, I actually would say probably for worse in terms of the time it's taken away from my family. I, I have never really had any separation between my business life and my personal life. I'm pretty much on 24-7. And um, so um, anyway, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that by helping people develop a financial plan that it, that in any way, sh shape, or form constitutes community service. It doesn't. And it, as I mentioned in the video on my website, I'm, you know, my passion is sort of like I, I, I view the financial planning process as a treasure hunt. And I find it immensely gratifying when I you know, can catch a major mistake or I'm able to apply some obscure rule to help clients save money or avoid avoid some you know potential planning disaster. Um, but that's not community service. You know, that that's my job. That's what people are paying me to do. So, well, I'm grateful to have a job that's both financially and personally rewarding. It, you know, that's doing well by doing good. It's, you know, it's, it's not community service insofar as it, it's not doing good for the sake of doing good. Um, so, uh, well, that's really a fascinating bit of introspection, JR. So how do you use your professional experience to give back to society? Um, the answer is actually, I guess, most succinctly described is through consumer protection ad advocacy. I mean, that that's, I think, become my passion. It's, it's funny, but um, the path to becoming the outspoken zealot that I am on a, on a couple of issues today, um, I think, evolved gradually and unconsciously over the past 30 plus years. And my activism really began to crank up, um, as we'll hear in today's broadcast, um, about five years ago. Uh, but it wasn't really until a major expose um, I helped develop with uh, the Wall Street Journal that was published in 2019 um, that it really started to embrace that role. And it really actually wasn't until I heard that John Lewis quote a few months ago that I realized that I've actually you know, reached that stage in my career where I actually want that you know consumer advocacy to be my legacy, and and when I say my legacy, I don't mean in terms of how I want to be remembered or anything like that. I mean, um, I do think that the institutions that I'm railing against are corrupt and that they cause immeasurable harm to consumers. But you know, my cause isn't the same as uh, the advancement of you to the. You know, it's not the same as the advancement of humanity or uh, um, through the civil rights movement or anything like that. I don't have any delusions that anyone's going to remember these little quixotic efforts that I'm doing, but. Um, when I say my legacy, what I mean is that when I eventually retire, I want to be able to look in the mirror at my old, tired, wrinkled self, and I want to feel pride in what I've done. I want to feel good about myself for really trying to make a difference. And, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to erase the guilt I feel for not you know, spending more time with my family, but it does make me feel like I found um, a genuine way to give back to society through this you know, consumer advocacy and zealousy. And JR, I can't help but notice that there's a fair amount of emotion behind your comments today. I can tell that this is really an important subject for you. And I know you personally, when you say when you get ready to retire, I don't see you retiring anytime soon. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, it is an important subject to you. Yeah, it is. And, and, and I'm, I'm got, it's kind of funny. I'm, I don't mean to be, um, when I say it's emotional, I, it's, I hope it's not too much, uh, you know, too much information. I, I hope I'm not oversharing. When, you know, my family tells me that I do that sometimes. And, and, and sometimes they tell me that I have no filter too. So um, I'd like to think though, that those are actually good qualities to have if you want to become a zealot. And um, another word for emotion is passion. And I don't think you can be a zealot without passion. Absolutely. So walk us through the events or experiences in your life, JR, that have made you into this zealot for consumer protection in personal finance. Um, sure. Well, you know, remember in one of our first episodes, I think it was um, episode two, how the sausage was made. Um, I recounted my first job in the financial industry when I was um, uh, naively duped into believing that I was joining a, an investment banking firm. Um, when in reality, it was just a sleazy penny stock slinging boiler room operation. And um, as I was explaining that, that ex experience was traumatic. You know, it, 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 um, it eventually led to my being hired by a, le a legit brokerage firm in AG Edwards and Sons, where I, I really got the start to my career. But as I mentioned in that commentary, I was, you know, I was really naive. And it, it actually took me 
maybe six months or a year to put it all together um, to understand truly what Hibbard Brown was all about. And that experience actually really started to gnaw at me. I mean, the notion that I was actually had been working for a company that was contri contributing and I, that I was contributing on a, um, even a very small scale, granted for a very short period of time, but I was helping to convert people's hard-earned savings into literally worthless paper while I was making uh, money for those scumbags at Hibber Brown, it was making me very uncomfortable. And, um, you know, it's so long ago now, I don't really remember when it was, whether it was a year or two into my time at AG Edwards. But, but one day I picked up the phone and I called the National Association of Securities Dealers, which um, the NASD, which at that time was the regulatory authority for the brokerage industry. Um, today it's regulated by FINRA, um, but uh, in that, those days it was the NASD. Anyway, I remember my, my, my hands were trembling when I made the call and uh, I wanted to tell the NASD that they really ought to take out, uh, check out Hibbert Brown. Um, I really didn't want to sit around and, and do nothing anymore. And the person who I spoke on the phone was very nice. They took a brief statement, thanked me for calling and said that they'd pass the information along. And um, so I felt good that I did at least done something, but I didn't really think about it much again. I pretty much forgot about it until, um, I don't know whether it was 1993 or 1994, uh, but I got a call from, I, th I think it was someone in the enforcement division at the SEC, or maybe it was FINRA, um, but they told me they were prosecuting Hibbard Brown. They wanted to know more about my experience. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, I remember being really nervous because I thought they might be after me too for, uh, for you know, having worked at the place. So um, to my great relief, they'd actually said they were aware of my previous call and that they were actually seeking um, other former employees to testify um, and to provide testimony against the firms uh, for its misconduct. And I was happy to do that. Um, and I was delighted to learn a, a little uh or it was a year or so later that Hibbert Brown ended up being banished from the industry. Um, sad truth is they probably just started all over again with a different name, maybe even set up shop in the same place, which I had actually learned. They had actually done that two times before becoming Hibbert Brown. So I'm not sure we had actually did anything, but it was my first experience at causing good trouble and it felt good to not just sit back and do nothing. So that was, that was, uh, that was where it, uh, that part sort of started anyway, the good trouble. They are. That is a great story. And what was your next good trouble? That's an amazing story. I, I'm mm -hmm. fascinated that little did you know when you made that first phone call, what was going to be the outcome of that? And, and it turned out for good. <laughs> yeah, that's the, yeah, the first good trouble. So I didn't think of it. I didn't even know the term until a couple of months ago. But um, yeah. well, um, you know, not much really happened for a while after that. But um, the foundation for my sort of my um, Crusades today, well, I think was laid somewhere around 1996 or 1997 um, when I enrolled in the um, CFP preparatory training program to become a certified financial planner. And um, in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s, the CFP designation was really just starting to show up on the industry radar. Um, it wasn't widely, widely followed or widely known. I think when I was at AG Edwards, I knew one insurance agent who held the designation and um, a couple of brokerage firm rips. And um, they were all, all three were really just commission-based salesmen. And I'm not throwing stones because I think that's all I was at the time too. But um, I could get a sense that um, there was, at the very least, there was some marketing value into using that to get to, for street cred. And I thought maybe, you know, had it in my back of my mind, maybe that's actually a path. I was becoming interested in that too. So maybe that's a path I should take. So when I moved to Smith Barney in Honolulu in 1996, um, my passion for be for getting into the elements of financial planning beyond just investment selection was pretty cemented, um, and I'd been reading the Journal of Financial Planning at around that time, so uh, it compelled me to enroll in the CFP program, um, the CFP prep program, through the College for Financial Planning. Um, it wasn't a real college, but it provided the, the prep program. And um, for the next two years, I worked my way through the curriculum. But as I was doing so, I, I was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the program itself, and and um, I don't mean to have this taken the wrong way. It had some useful information. Um, I think it was particularly helpful for, for budding financial planners who may not have had any previous exposure to finance. I, I think there is some valuable information in the curriculum. Um, but from my perspective, the curriculum had, had been, you know, it was billed as college level training, but it was to me, the portfolio management part, the investing part, the economic sections were you know, much, much lower um, than what I had in my undergraduate econ experience. Um, but what really bothered me, what really bothered me more um, was the program's emphasis on the sale of insurance products. And as I was reading it, it seemed to me that they were saying that these products were, were good for just about every financial objective. And I honestly felt like the curriculum had been written by like a, an 1860s or 70s carpetbagger snake oil salesman. Um, 
if you read through it, you could, uh, it basically said you could use permanent life insurance for estate planning, for retirement income, for college savings, for emergency reserves. I think if you read further, it'd probably take out stains in your clothes or cure consumption and apoplexy, just like the snake oil did. So, um, you know, it, and at the same time, the CFP board was writing about how it, you know, it had a, these ethical standards, but nowhere in the curriculum were they talking about the ethical implications of selling insurance products that have opaque commissions and often very large commissions. And that bothered me. So ultimately I was, I was turned off enough by all of that, that I made the decision to not ever sit for the CFP exam, to never get the CFP designation. And um, as I look back, I think that was the time that I started to become a zealot. I wasn't thinking of it that way, but that was the time because I knew that I could, if I got the CFP designation, it would give me marketing credibility. And, um, the conscious decision not to sell out my belief system for my own potential financial gain was, um, you know, that was, that was doing something to, you know, to along the lines of becoming a zealot. And, um, you know, um, the decision was, I have to admit, it was made a little bit easier to make that decision time because I already had a client base. I wasn't worried about my future. I was pretty sure I was knowledgeable enough to, to become successful, but, um, but that was the route there anyway. And um, yeah, I know, um, you know, we're um, uh, probably coming up on a, on a commercial break here pretty soon, but I should say that um, while I made some fairly pointed comments about the CFP Board of Standards and its leadership, I, I really don't have any beef with the thousands of, of qualified ethical practicing CFPs. Um, a fair number of them are my friends and colleagues, but I do have a big issue with the legions of CFPs who use the designation for harm and um, with the CFP Board itself for uh, sort of allowing that to happen. So, um, uh, you know, with that, uh, where were we time-wise? Should we go for a commercial break? Sounds good, JR. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteguru.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's one 866 472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to my two cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich. They are, so I know from a couple of our prior programs that you are no great fan of the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards. And now I can see that this is where it all started for you. But what came next? Yeah, so like I said, and just to be clear, um, I'm no big fan of the CFP Board of Standards by any stretch. Um, the CFP members, lots of them are my friends. There are lots of plenty of competent people out there. But yeah, I have a, I have a bit of a, an issue with the CFP Board of Standards. So um, yeah, that uh, what we recounted before the break, that was that was the beginning, um, though I didn't really think about it much again, you know, um, until around 2000 or 2007 or actually I think it was 2008. Um, I read an article by Dan Moisand, who was at that time the president of the Financial Planning Association or the, the FPA. And for its part, the FPA was and still is essentially a puppet organization of the Certified Financial Planning Board of Standards. Um, its primary purpose is to advance the CFP designation as uh, a required standard for the financial planning industry. And in his article, uh, Mr. Moisan referred to all non-CFP financial planners as, quote, faux planners, unquote. unquote. And um, to put it bluntly, 
um, his really unjustified condescension pissed me off. And uh, so I wrote an op-ed reply for Advisor Perspectives um, titled In Defense of Faux Planners. And um, Advisor Perspectives is a widely read publication in the financial services industry. And in my article, I reminded Mr. Moisand that the CFP designation itself carries absolutely no academic accreditation. And um, at that time, um, you didn't even need a college degree to sit for the exam. Today, um, it, you do, it is required, but you still don't need to have any prior academic experience in finance or econ or accounting. And um, I expressed to him my counterposition that there were plenty of people like me who actually had real academic experience. And I relayed my own experience in the CFP curriculum. And I also reminded him that there were, even by that time, um, a number of high-profile examples of CFPs who had used the designation to build up credibility and to gain consumer trust, really for the sole purpose of defrauding people. So, um, the highest example at that time, um, and I, which I cited in the article, was an example of a fellow named Bradford Blight. And Blight was... Um, a Boston CFP, and he had a radio show. And remember what I always say about don't trust radio show hosts who uh, on, who do personal finance. <laughs> um, but anyway, Blight, um, Blight was convicted. Uh, he ran a $30 million Ponzi scheme, and um, he admitted to using his radio fame and the CFP designation to, to do that. Um, his Ponzi scheme gutted charitable organizations around Boston, including churches and several Masonic lodges. And in fact, there's um, an article I cited in my reply to Dan that said, uh, um, the article was titled, Before There Was Madoff, There Was Bradford Blight. So um, I'd known since the mid-1990s that financial advisors weighed the marketing value of the CFP letters next to their name at least as much as they valued the knowledge they got from the PrEP program. And um, it was also around that time that the big brokerage firms, I think uh, Merrill Lynch took the lead on that, they started encouraging their sales forces to go out and obtain the designation for marketing credibility too. Um, so writing that Advisor Perspectives article and thinking about the Bradford Blight story uh, marked the point at which my private disdain for the, you know, my private little battle against the CFP board became not just a fight between them and me, but it became a consumer protection issue. So Blight made it clear um, as day when he explained how he used the designation to create the perception of ethics and knowledge in, in order to defraud uh, customers. He basically, the CFP mark was becoming a false signal. And in looking back, um, I think it's safe to say that Moisten's article really lit the fuse in, in my crusade, crusade against the CFP board. And funny related story, but at about the same time in 2008, um, I was in Boston at a conference um, presenting a paper that I, I co-authored on um, retirement income sustainability with uh, three professors from the University of Hawaii's Scheidler College of Business. And um, we were there and our, our, we presented our paper and we were actually awarded the Certified Financial Planner Board of Standards Best Paper Award. And the paper was presented by the CFP board's new CEO, Kevin Keller. And um, afterwards he came up to congratulate me and he personally um, thanked me for the, the work. And he suggested that I should get my CFP designation. <laughs> and uh, um, I was, um, I thought it was, I was I was very polite, but I, I laughed. I said, I thought it was funny that you're telling me to get the CFP designation. We just finished telling me that you're going to use the paper that I wrote as part of the curriculum for the CFP board. But um, anyway, I think if I had it to do over again, um, or if he if he had it, if Kevin had it to do over again, I'm not sure we would have won that award back then. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fascinating story, Jr. So if I understand your position correctly, you, you believe that the CFP that's a certified financial planner board of standards promotes the sale of insurance products with opaque commissions and has a responsibility to protect consumers from CFPs who may use the designation to harm consumers. Is that right? It's absolutely right. I believe that, that they actually have that obligation and it's an obligation that they completely ignore. But um, really, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, um, you know, over the next 10 plus years, the CFP board um, with the help of a number of highly visible acolytes and, and supporters, including Mr. Moisan, but uh, there were many others too, um, they would um, take a much more proactive role in, um, in, in furthering the CFP board's monopolistic and monetary self-interest um, at the expense of consumer protection. Wow. Well, and I must assume now that you would like to tell us about them. Jessica, you are a mind reader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, um, 
after I, I wrote in, um, in defense of faux planners, uh, I went back to my primary research interest, which was retirement and sustainability um, for a few years. I really didn't think much about um, advancing that crusade any further. Um, but for its part, the CFP board was really very busy under Kevin Keller's leadership. And um, Mr. Keller uh, went uh, um, came to the CFP board. He didn't really have any background. He didn't come up as a financial planner or anything. Um, he was best known, I think he came to the role as a political operative in Washington, DC. Um, I believe he was a lobbyist for the agricultural industry. And he was brought in um, to increase the CFP board's membership and to make the CFP designation the required standard for all financial planners. And by all accounts, including mine, uh, Mr. Keller has been an extremely effective leader and, and, and has executed what he was tasked to do um, very well. Um, early in his tenure, the first thing he did was, I think, move the CFP board's headquarters from Denver to Washington, D.C., um, obviously closer to the legislators. And um, he made extremely impressive inroads in doing that. Um, he also um, got connected with the Consumer Federation of America, um, and um, which has basically served as a lapdog for, for supporting that uh, the CFP board over time. Um, and during that period, he also smartly positioned the board as a champion for the fiduciary standard, even though the fiduciary standard has already been a part of the financial planning um, requirements for under the SEC. Um, but he carved out, um, he, he, he lobbied to carve out um, financial planning as a separate profession from the brokerage and investment advisory businesses. And um, a strange thing happened, but in 2012, he managed to use his Washington connections to get the CFP board um, at a seat at the policy table during the drafting of Dodd-Frank. And um, this is something a lot of people don't really know about, but um, during that, um, he submitted uh, and pressed for the creation of a financial planner oversight board under the SEC that would essentially require all financial planners to obtain the CFP designation. And had that plan come to fruition, it would have been an enormous coup um, and fortunately, the proposal got shelved and never happened. But if that had been implemented, it would have effectively granted monopolistic control over financial planning to the CFP board. And it would have forced people like me to either kiss their ring um, and attain the designation or abandon our clients and, and exit the industry. And that's still their objective to do that. Um, now, over the years, the CFP board also had um, you know, a number of scandals, too. So um, Kevin Keller and the board's executive team, I think, um, received some criticism along the way for becoming increasingly op opaque in their corporate governance. They don't really disclose compensation or anything like that. Um, they received some heat for some expensive travel junkets that they were taking along the way. And Keller's own salary crossed the uh, million dollar threshold that raised some eyebrows and sort of conjured up images of uh, William Marimony and you're back in the United Way scandal. Um, but uh, he continued to claw for the moral high ground in positioning the CFP board as a champion for the fiduciary standard. And, um, Around that time, people started calling the CFP board out a little bit uh, on that too. There were some articles that were written. Again, I was really wasn't thinking about it much back then, but um, there, the uh, people began to notice that the CFP board's own self-defined fiduciary standard had some considerable holes and left a lot of room for its members to avoid uh, having to disclose important conflicts of interest. Um, and that still exists, happens today. But um, you know, the idea that the CFP board was more interested in the appearance rather than the reality of consumer protection began to get some press um, through a couple of articles in 2012. The first was in an article written by Alan Roth, who was a, a well-respected CFP who wrote a column for the Wall Street Journal. And he wrote a piece called, Is the CFP's Fiduciary Standard a Joke? And um, in that article, uh, Alan told of a CFP who was charging both opaque commissions and asset-based fees on a client account, basically double dipping. Um, and uh, he was chronicled his frustration really with, um, you know, he tried to report it to the CFP board and the board actually refused to pursue the complaint. And his article caught the attention of another journalist who wrote a follow-up piece. Um, and it was called, I think, uh, the Curious Case of the CFP Board and the Double Dipping CFP. And both of those articles attracted a lot of eyeballs, including mine, but it would still be a few more years before, um, before I was compelled to, to start stirring up good trouble again. But that was, um, that was sort of what go was going on for a few years in the middle there. So speaking of stirring up good trouble again, what brought you, JR, back into the fight? Um, I had written an, uh, an article or two during that period 
challenging the CFP board's position that um, fee-only financial planning is free from conflicts of interest. Um, and, um, but there were, um, yeah, there were a, uh, a couple of factors that led me beyond those articles to really ramp up my crusade against the CFP board. And one was that I just seemed to keep randomly stumbling across CFPs who had significant disclosure events reported on their securities registration, but who continued to be endorsed on the CFP board's verification site as having clean disciplinary histories. It was just random, but I just keep running into them. And the other is that the CFP board started spending millions and millions of dollars each year on advertising campaigns designed to raise a, a brand awareness with consumers and advising consumers that CFPs were more ethical and were more trustworthy than non-CFPs and that non-CFP financial planners were unregulated. And I think it was around uh, 2016 or 2017 that um, I first noticed these uh, consumer-focused PR campaigns and it really started to get under my skin. Oh yeah, and this bothered you. Uh, yeah, it bothered me. Uh, remember how I said how Dan Moyson's Faux Planners article really pissed me off? Um, oh, when, yes. I, <laughs> uh, when I started seeing these ad campaigns, um, smoke cards started coming out, out of my ears. I really, I was really started seeing red. Um, <laughs> well, tell us about some of those ads. They sound kind of interesting. Honestly, they were interesting. They were uh, they were well produced. But uh, I'll give you three examples that inspired me to go into my full-on fire and brimstone zealot mode. And um, what they <laughs> um, what they what they did that that set me off is that they foster consumer confusion over industry regulation, and they cause consumers to set up to be set up to be preyed upon by the next Bradford blight. And uh, to me, it's like totally irresponsible. Um, the first thing I the first video was a, a clip, and this was this was really entertaining. But um, it was used in television. It was used in, in social media advertising, in which uh, this wild-eyed disc jockey um, had his dreadlocks cut off and, and he was cleaned up at the beginning of the, the video. He's put in a suit and he was ordered to um, uh, task to impersonate a financial planner for a bunch of unsuspecting consumers. And the consumers all say, well, yeah, I trust him with my money, at which time he informs them, I'm just a DJ. I don't have any financial planning experience. And the tagline was that basically anyone could call themselves a financial planner. So, um, you know, this is more than a little bit misleading because anyone who uses the term financial planner and I explained this in another episode, um, they have to be registered with the SEC. They have to provide each client with a plain English disclosure document explaining their experience, conflicts of interest, how they get paid, their disclosure history, and they're held to the SEC's standard of conduct, which includes a strict fiduciary standard, and they're held to the, um, the code of ethics that the SEC has. So, um, so that was one. Um, the second PR piece was a one-minute video that featured the CFP Board General Counsel Leo Rizuski explaining to consumers how the CFP Board of Standards of Conduct, um, the CFP Board's Board of Standards of Conduct, represents a higher standard than that of the state and regular federal regulatory authorities. And I, I could not believe how irresponsible that was. I mean, I was honestly shocked that that ad wasn't shut down by the SEC because it clearly fostered regulatory confusion and consumer confusion. Um, uh, uh, over that. And uh, to be clear, the CFP board has absolutely no regulatory standing whatsoever. Um, it only governs its members and its track record on enforcement against its own members is abysmal. And um, although the CFP board trumpets its own self-defined fiduciary standard, uh, if you read it carefully, unlike the SEC's fiduciary standard that it applies to financial planners, the CFP boards does not require its members to provide any written disclosure of conflicts of interest, nor does it require CFPs to disclose the amount of commission they could receive from the sale of insurance products with opaque commissions. So, um, so that was a couple. Um, a third advertisement that really set my hair on fire was a print ad in which the CFP board boasts that all CFPs are, quote, thoroughly vetted and held to the highest standard. And in truth, there are literally hundreds of CFPs with regulatory disclosure rap sheets that would literally make Bernie Madoff blush. And the CFP board knows about them and they do nothing. Um, in fact, uh, they endorse them as clean on the CFP verification website. And in my opinion, the CFP is actually complicit in feeding consumers to these predators. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, you can see my butt gets a little boiled when I talk about it. Oh, yeah, I can, <laughs> I can definitely see I that. Fire and, and, this is, and this inspired you to start writing again. And we're going to hear about that. And our topic today is JR's Good Trouble. 
And we have covered a lot of ground on that subject, and JR is going to be covering more ground on it when we come back right after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Nest Egg Guru makes affordable software for financial advisor websites to help advisors better educate and engage with their clients. Consumers today no longer wish to receive book-length so-called financial plans that they'll never read after leaving their advisor's office. Instead, they want to be educated and to participate in the planning process. The three Nest Egg Guru planning apps help address your greatest financial fear. If things go badly in the markets, will I still be okay? Tell your financial advisor to step up his or her game at nesteggguru.com. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to My Two Cents. We'd love to hear from you on the program today. Call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send an email, the email address is info at fphawaii.com. Now, back to My Two Cents. Here again are your hosts, J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich. JR, just before the break, you were talking about uh, advertising that you saw sort of striking with what is called faux planners. So, and you gave us some examples about those. Ken, so this obviously inspired you to start writing again. Yeah, I mean, the, the yeah, well, actually what, uh, what inspired me was really all of those um, misleading and, and, in my opinion, irresponsible PR advertising from the CFP board. And, um, that really exists, I think, does a severe disservice to consumers and actually um, does immeasurable harm to them by exposing them to um, uh, people who might prey on them. So, and conf- causing regulatory confusion. So, um, yeah, I, I became pro- relatively prolific in my writing as those ads started to come out um, and those PR campaigns. Um, and I think by now I've written maybe 20 different articles on that that have been published. Uh, as a couple of examples, in 2017, I published an advisor perspectives piece called the uh, the CFP board's duplicitous dance. Um, in 2018, I wrote another op-ed piece titled, um, also in advisor perspectives, titled why the CFP board should not govern the financial planning profession. And um, in that article, I traced the CFP board's decidedly checkered past from its origins um, when it started out as a tool for insurance agents um, to give them credibility to, to, to sell high commission products. Um, to the far more sophisticated acts of misrepresentation and, and deception that we've been talking about today. Um, and that paper that year was one of the most read papers in advisor perspectives um, and really caught a lot of eyeballs. Uh, now, even though I'd written a bunch of papers already calling out the CFP board, that 2018 paper um, did a fair amount to elevate my visibility as an anti-CFP board activist. And um, it attracted enough visibility that I think um, Kevin Keller came out and commented that he really strongly disagreed with my views, um, but he didn't. And I don't think he ever has ever refuted any of my positions. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I support everything I say. and I stand by everything I've uh, said in my comments. You may not like them, but that is what it is. Um, what, uh, what really got me to the point though, where I could see that my activism was beginning to have a little, at least a little bit of an impact just came about after a, a chance encounter with a friend of mine in Honolulu in, um, in September in two, 2018. And I think I relayed this story in a prior episode, but it's, it's definitely relevant to this. Um, and he asked me to check out uh, a financial advisor who worked for a big insurance company uh, who was pitching him for a 401k plan for his business. And uh, my friend said the fellow was really out there flexing his CFP designation. And he boasted that he had a private jet and he was um, going to take my client on some expensive golf outings to try to earn his business. And um, it rubbed my client a little bit the wrong way. He just um, got a shady feeling about the guy. And he asked me to check him out. So I checked out the dude on um, FINRA broker check. And when I did, I found that he had three client complaints against him for unsuitable recommendations uh, that resulted in settlements of more than $100,000 each. Um, He had a termination from cause from a different employer for something entirely different. 
And he actually had a personal bankruptcy filing within 12 years ago. So I'm not sure where he got the person, the private jet. But um, any case, um, so much for thoroughly vetted and so much for the highest standard, right? Um, so um, that was probably about the fourth or fifth time in recent years that I'd stumbled across a CFP that had a, a less than ethical background. So I decided I was going to reach out to Alan Roth, the CFP who wrote that double dipping story back in 2012. Yes. And um, I spoke with Alan. And uh, he said um, that uh, he'd put me in touch with Jason Zweig, who was, uh, he wrote, also wrote for the Wall Street Journal. He's actually a really well-respected journalist, and he writes a column in the Wall Street Journal. And Alan told me that Jason was exploring the subject a little bit too, and, and thought maybe he'd be interested in talking to me. So um, he put us in touch, and in, in um, November 2018, um, I relayed my story of the shady CFP I just encountered. And then Jason asked me, he said, if I thought there were many more people like it. And um, I told him I had no idea how many more there were, were lurking around, but um, but based on my just random encounters with other people like that, I, I said, I guess that there were probably hundreds more like him. And he was kind of skeptical. Um, he said, really? Hundreds? Really? I said, you know, I don't know, but I just, it's, I'm just a little guy in Hawaii and I keep running into it. So um, Jason told me that they developed a method of screening through FINRA broker check records, and they were going to try to see how prevalent that problem was, and that he'd get back to me and let me know what they found out. So in the meantime, I wrote up another article uh, calling out the CFP board for covering for guys like the, this, um, this fellow that I'd just been talking about. And uh, it was published in Financial Planning Magazine in um, January 2019. And again, it was just telling consumers that all CFPs, that, that you know, the message that all CFPs are thoroughly vetted and high, held to a high ethical standard isn't necessarily right. Um, but then in April 2019, I got a call back from Jason and he told me, so he wanted to get back to me and tell me the results. He told me that um, my estimate of hundreds of CFPs with misconduct records uh, that were un unrecorded or unreported by the CFP board was actually completely wrong. I wasn't even close. Um, he said, in fact, there were thousands. And um, wow. Jason and his co-author, 6,300 was, I think, the total that they, they came up with in, in, in their um, research. And um, Jason and his co-author, Andrea Fuller, ended up publishing their findings in a front page Wall Street Journal expose um, in July 2019, and um, they were kind, kind enough to feature my commentary in that story as well. And that story brought a lot of attention to the issue, and it caused a whole lot of people to open up their eyes to the, you know, the CFP board's self-serving nature, and it's, it's really its willful blindness to its, um, its own members' misconduct. JR, that is an amazing story. So all of this good trouble that you have been stirring up and all of the noise that you were making clearly had an impact. So what was the fallout from that Wall Street Journal article and where do things stand today? Uh, well, you know, I definitely take some satisfaction in um, helping to land a shot that gave the CFP board a serious black eye and causing the CFP to spend a bunch of time and money forming all these ad hoc committees to create the illusion that they were serious about addressing the problem. Um, but at the end of the day, the CFP board and, and Kevin Keller are honestly masters of spin. Um, I wrote an article actually with that exact same title. Um, nearly a year and a half later, they, I, I actually believe the CFP board has successfully managed to turn that event into a positive by showing how its immediate response to the expose and all the subsequent appearance of action plans that they developed um, show that they're readier than ever to lead the profession. And that's how it's being perceived. Now. I'm just I'm like, wow, how did that happen? Um, and now nearly a year and a half later, all those CFPs with major misconduct records are still doing business as usual. The CFP board is still turning a blind eye to them, even though they know that they exist. Um, and they're promoting a false fiduciary standard. And, and you know, all of this talk about renewed focus on their enforcement is just, to me, just fluff. Um, you know, honestly, as you can see, my blood's still boiling. Yeah, I can see that. So given the history and, and your activism, what's next for you? Do you plan to continue your advocacy or do you plan to continue to cause good trouble? <laughs> um, yes, as I, as I mentioned, um, consumer advocacy and financial planning has become my passion and calling out the bad guys in this space is still very definitely my good trouble. Um, these days I've sort of uh, immersed myself in, in researching the demographics of advisor misconduct. And um, I've actually been pretty good uh, adept at, at gathering detailed financial advisor misconduct data myself. Um, 
and I'm using this data to try to publish research to you know, raise awareness of this problem and to counter the CFP board's claim that its members are more ethical than non-CFP financial planners and all that. Um, I've also compiled a list of a couple hundred CFPs that have particularly monstrous misconduct histories. And um, I plan to share those a little bit of, at a time to various media outlets to sort of demonstrate the harm that the CFP board does to consumers um, and telling them that all CFPs are ethical and trustworthy. And, uh, and also to raise public awareness of the, the CFP board's history of putting its interests um, above the, the interests of the consumers that it pretends to protect. Um, so, um, so I've got that. Um, I'm also actually planning to expand the reach of my advocacy a little bit by, by calling out the Consumer Federation of, uh, of America for its continued support, unfailing support really of the CFP board. and. Um, I want to try to raise awareness of the conflict of interest that they have in collecting thousands of dollars of dues from the CFP board every year. So um, that's an issue that I want. You know, I want more out there. Um, similarly, I'm, I'm also seeking to raise awareness of the close ties that exist between the CFP board and the insurance industry, which is through the American College of Financial Services. Um, which itself was formerly known as the American College of Life Insurance Underwriters. And um, for those who don't know, the American College is basically run by the insurance industry, and it is the single largest purveyor by far of the CFP prep program. So it's the feeder program into which CFPs go to get to sit for the exam. Um, so it shouldn't come as any great surprise that the CFP board has always carefully drafted its standards of conduct to avoid requiring its members to have to disclose you know, it, opaque commissions from insurance sales. Wow, it sounds like you have a full plate right now, JR. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do. Um, in fact, uh, it's a bit overwhelming at times, and uh, I, I continue to make my good trouble with the full understanding that I, I don't have the resources or the time um, to devote for the cause. Um, uh, I fully expect that I will lose my Quixotic battle over time. And uh, you know, within the next decade, I fully expect that the CFP board will actually gain the monopoly it seeks and the consumers will be much, much worse with the fox in charge of the hen house. Um, but it won't be because I sat back and did nothing. So um, you know, my bigger picture is really just to, to continue to try to improve my own character by standing up for things that I believe in in the industry and for doing the best that I can to um, share my accumulated knowledge and experience and to, you know, try to help inform and educate consumers. Um, you know, and that's, that was the whole purpose in doing this show too, right? It's, um, you know, my two cents. That's what we're all about is to, uh, is to, you know, share that perspective. Absolutely. And JR, how does a consumer determine whether an advisor that they're using now is any good? How can, how can, can you give us some inside secrets? Yep, yep. I'll share. Um, as you know, I mentioned that in um, one of our previous shows about how to how to select a, a financial advisor. Uh, yes. It's a great question, and the the short answer to do is do exactly what I did, do exactly what Jason Zweig did too. Um, Finra Broker Check. If you just do a Google search for Finra Broker Check and you put the first name and the last name of the person in, that will tell you if that person is a financial planner. If they have a securities registration, they'll show up on there. Um, and along with their uh, employment history, and if they have any disclosure events, any misconduct that's recorded, any client complaints against them, um, any fines against them, any suspensions, that would be there. Um, the tricky thing is that that's, and there's another site, uh, the SEC has a SEC IAPD website, the um, Investment Advisor Public Disclosure Platform does the same thing. Um, you put in the first name, last name, and um, it'll give you the, the advisor's full background. Um, the only tricky thing is that that doesn't cover everyone. There isn't such, um, you know, a lot of the financial planners also hold insurance licenses and insurance product sales are outside the realm of the SEC. There are a number of CFPs, uh, you know, because a lot of them come from insurance backgrounds that actually don't have any securities registrations. So um, if they're just selling insurance products, many of which look like investment products, um, they're outside the realm of the SEC's reach and they won't show up on broker check and they won't show up on the SEC IPD website. But for the most part, most financial planners, most people who hold themselves out will. So also, JR, there are articles written to use fee-only advisors. Is that good advice or not good advice? Um, yeah, I think well, we, you know, we, this is something we tackled a little bit in another show too. It's also very good to bring up now too. So 
Um, I have strong feelings on that issue too, um, insofar as, and I've written about this, I think I've wrote the first article I wrote on um, the ethics of financial advisor compensation models was a 2007 article I wrote in uh, for Journal of Financial Planning on that very topic. And the, the, basically what I want consumers and listeners to this show to know is that every compensation model has conflicts of interest. And um, you know, the key is disclosing them. So flat fee financial planner, planning advisor, for example, the conflict of interest is obvious. They have a, an incentive to work as little as possible to get paid. And that's common in the legal profession. You hear people complaining about re re the retainers and the attorneys aren't actually doing anything. They're just collecting a check. Hourly building, obviously we talked about that in the last show. I'm, I'm not a big fan of hourly building, especially in financial planning, because it actually creates a disincentive for the client to share information with the planner, which is essential if you're in, for, in terms of the information gathering process to get to know a, a, a client and to be able to do a good job. So uh, um, obviously the, the conflict of interest in commission business is obvious, right? You have the advisor has an incentive to generate commissions and you know, that's obvious, but every um, uh, compensation model has conflicts of interest. Um, Asset-based compensation is heavily convicted, conflicted too. Um, so there isn't one. Um, the key to choosing a financial planning compensation model is to understand the conflicts of interest, understand exactly how, what you're paying, what you're getting in return, and, and um, uh, to have the advisor explain um, what their conflicts are in advance in writing. So, JR, if someone is just tuning in to the show right now and they've missed it and they're just getting the last part of the show, the topic today was JR's Good Trouble. Can you summarize uh, about JR's good, tr good Trouble and what we've been talking about this last hour? <laughs> yeah, my, my good trouble is really... Um, you know, my passion is, has become consumer advocacy. And it's actually the primary purpose of this show, which is to help people understand um, the potential pitfalls and the disclosure that's needed in, in the financial planning industry, um, to raise awareness of the potential problems and to be an advocate for the consumer, to, um, um, you know, to, put the, to make sure the consumer's interests come first. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's it. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, explain all that. And you've given us some amazing examples this past hour Have you, as you have gone to bat for the consumer. And you will continue to do that with your career, JR. Hope so. Hope so. Yes. <laughs> you've been listening to My Two Cents with financial planning expert, JR Robinson. Our topic today was JR's Good Trouble. I'm Jessica Lonnie Rich. Thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in this week to My Two Cents. Be sure to join J.R. Robinson and Jessica Lonnie Rich again next Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until we talk again, aloha. Aloha.